0: Hi, everybody. Welcome to our fourth Universalist service video. My name is Reverend Skylar Vogel. I use he, him pronouns. I'm so glad to be with you for this service uh, and uh, to share some words with you. Uh, What follows are the selections from our service on May eighth, two 2022. You will see a reading, you will see my message, and then you will see a lively discussion between myself and our Director of Religious Education, Ember Kelly. Uh, If you like what you see, Please feel free to give a comment, to like, to share. Uh, We'd love to engage with you on on, on the various many ways that our videos and our audio um, are offered, whether it's on our website, Facebook, YouTube, Instagram, or your favorite podcast streaming sites. Finally, we acknowledge that our physical congregation here in New York City is located on the Muncie Lenape land. This acknowledgement is part of our work ongoing work of fighting legacies of oppression, both current and past. We invite you to join us in this work at Fourth Universalist as we embrace the Eighth UU Principles. Friends, thank you again for watching. We hope you enjoy.
1: by the American poet Mary Oliver. If you suddenly and unexpectedly feel joy, don't hesitate. Give in to it. There are plenty of lives and whole towns destroyed or about to be. We are not wise and not very often kind. And much can never be redeemed. Still, life has some possibility left to it. Perhaps this is its way of fighting back that sometimes something happens better than all the riches or powers in the world. It could be anything, but very likely you notice it in the instant when love begins. Anyway, that's often the case. Anyway, whatever it is, Don't be afraid of its plenty. Joy is not made to be a crumb.
0: One year, over the winter holidays during college, I took a job as a playground supervisor. The assignment was simple. Keep the kids from hurting each other and themselves. Do that while enforcing a dizzying array of rules for which there was no rule book. Adult common sense would make it clear, I was told. No playing on the hill over there, it was too steep. No crossing this line if you were under eight. No climbing on the fence, you might fall and break something. And of course, no shoving no tackling, no fighting, no generally being a jerk. Now the other supervisors who patrolled the pavement and playground were a grizzled lot. Their countenances suggested they were veterans of many an attempted hill climb and thwarted shove. But their toughness was subtly tempered by a clear fondness for the children whose safety they oversaw as well as a fairness that engendered respect and obedience. Most children I found when they pushed into the lengthy list of unstated rules, usually doing so intentionally, responded quickly and immediately to what we called redirection. We redirected them away from the fence or the hill. We broke up playful wrestling matches between friends, but also intervened in real spats, de-escalating arguments, brokering peace treaties, and tending to the complex emotional landscape of childhood. This included everything from the heartache of being betrayed by friends, the pain of being excluded from a game, or the shame of being made fun of the clothes you wore, how you walked, or just being different. Playground supervisors wiped away a lot of tears. This was our work – enforcer, protector, counselor, mediator, friend. I was only working for a week, however, before it became clear that something was bothering the other playground supervisors. They were unsettled by something. I learned it was because of Devin. Now Devin was a fourth grader. Devin was a new kid. He had recently moved from out of state, joining his class midway through the year. The school was small enough that he was immediately known by everyone In his grade and the oppression that he was making was not a good one. Devon was out of control. He was constantly in fights, in the classroom, on the playground, with kids in his class and kids he didn't even know. He was small for his age, not able to effectively intimidate his own classmates but still able to aggravate them into conflicts. When they predictably predictably avoided and excluded him, he lashed out resentfully, further deepening his isolation. On the playground, he seemed to bounce from one conflict to another conflict, always in motion, always angry, like a pinball that explodes whatever it hits. The playground supervisors, steady and practiced as they were, found that Devin did not respond to redirection. Preventing a spat in one corner of the playground, they would soon find him in another, initiating another spat. Tell him to get off the hill over there and he would be back at that same hill, a few minutes later, defiant. We had to have one eye on Devin and another eye on everybody else. Visits to detention or the principal's office seemed to make no difference. He was already visiting the school counselor, already enrolled in special education with an IEP. It got so bad that I too was summoned to the principal's office. I was aware that I was probably the weak link Of the supervisor team, novice that I was, was I going to get blamed for Devin's delinquency? Fortunately, I was not. But I had a new assignment, I was told. It seemed they had decided that Devin had gone on long enough. The situation, a new strategy, was needed. I was to become his personal playground supervisor. I was to follow him around throughout recess, three times a day, to be his shadow, as they called it, and make sure he didn't get into any more trouble. So I did. The next day, instead of supervising and surveying my normal area corner of the playground, I found Devin in the recess line And we went off together. That first day was rough. Redirection after redirection. Pulling him away as he swang at a group of kids. Using my body as a blockade between him and his enemies. Him yelling at me, cursing at me for my obstruction. But I also saw the kind of life Devin was leading. I saw how his brittleness and erraticness led to painful rejection after painful rejection. I saw how quickly he took offense for small, sometimes imagined, slights. How he seemed to escalate conflict to provoke, protect himself. And how his self-righteous anger erupted not from cruelty, but resentment. I also saw, though, how he continued to always gravitate towards other kids, how he seemed like he wanted to play with others, but struggled to manage the inevitable disappointments and disagreements that would arise when people interacted. I saw that he was isolated and he was lonely as a new kid, but how he was stuck in this spiral of lashing out and alienating everyone he seemed to encounter. When he had a negative experience, and it was often on those playground days, I tried my best to talk with him, ask him what he was thinking and feeling, about what made him frustrated and what he thought made the other kids respond like they did. We had a lot of those conversations. And after a few weeks, I started to notice a little change with Devin. He seemed to throw himself less into conflicts, like a erratic, chaotic pinball. He seemed happier to be able to play by himself, less explosive, less needy. I would dutifully follow him along still where he went and he would tell me what he was doing, what he was thinking, share whatever he had on his mind. I asked him in turn about his favorite things, about what it was like being in a new place, a new school, how his day was going, how class was going. I had no real experience with children. I had zero training in child psychology or counseling. I admit that I felt really awkward almost all the time when I was with him. And I'm sure that really any other staff person at that school would be more qualified and better at doing what I had been asked to do. Devin did not seem to notice, and I was grateful for that. What I was becoming to him was a friend, someone who was there for him, who cared about him, who looked forward to seeing him and let him know that, who he could count on, no matter what awful thing happened that morning, or yesterday, or earlier that week, or even at recess with him. I still redirected him multiple times at playground, but I did so with him knowing that I would not make him feel small or unimportant, or that he had to risk knowing that I would reject him for something that he did. He was stuck with me and that was a reassurance. I was not going anywhere. Our relationship became a grounding rod, a safe haven, a place of refuge in all the storm that he was experiencing. A place where all those negative feelings and all that pain and rejection, anger, could both live but then also dissipate because he knew he was safe and didn't have to respond. There, he could feel big enough and valued enough. He didn't didn't need to put others down or attack. Devin and I were only together for about a month. As I prepared to leave, he was no longer picking fights on the playground and in his classroom. His parents reported that he was happier at home and actually doing his homework. He was starting to change. I do not and cannot take credit for his transformation. This is not a story about me, but about him and how kindness and compassion and love can change the life of a troubled person. I think back to Devin and this memory often, especially recently in the last few years, because there's been a certain cynicism I have found growing within me. It's a cynicism that suggests that the world is only a mean and cruel place. A cynicism that says that people who hurt others will be unrepentant always. That people do not wish to change and won't change and that redemption is so rare unless it is forced and pressured or punishment is threatened. The cynicism that says that the forces of anger and hate and meanness are so thriving in this world and in the hearts of so many people. And those forces of decency and kindness and love that oppose them are weak and pathetic and powerless in the face of them. Cynicism that says that people who are like Devin was stay mean and hurtful and that their better qualities stay silent and repressed. Now there are the usual platitudes that we sometimes trot out, that we use to push back against this cynicism. But to me, they often feel shallow. Phrases like love conquers all, or goodness wins in the end. We tell ourselves, but they ring hollow so often. In a world full of war, in a world where our democracy is denigrated day by day, in a world that has constantly lies, lies that lead to power and yet are still believed, a world that destroys the rights of one's sovereignty over their own body. When I feel cynical, I think back to Devon, and I remember I remember that even though there are so many reasons to despair, so many reasons to believe that people cannot change and won't change and refuse to change, so many reasons to believe that goodness won't win out or can't win out, that sometimes still it does. Sometimes a little kindness makes the world of difference. Sometimes a simple friendship can truly transform a person's life. Sometimes things really will be okay if we are just good to one another and trust the goodness in each other's hearts. I hope that each one of you has had an experience like a Devon in your life. Moments in people when despite your greatest cynicism, love wins out, kindness changed everything. I want you to hold on to those moments, to remember them, And keep them tucked away in part of your mind and your heart that you can return to when that cynicism hits you so hard that you don't think that goodness has power, that love has power. that You can have that spark of hope again when you need it most. Now I can't stand up here today and tell you that I know what Devin's life turned out to be. I know that when I left that school, they didn't assign another personal playground supervisor for him because they believed that he was a changed boy. I know he had started to make other friends by then starting to show that he could roll with the emotional complexities of childhood, managing conflict and expressing his feelings without exploding. I imagine that he still had bad days and regressed, and needed redirection. But even though I don't know what he's doing now, I'd like to think that that part of him that started to emerge, that thoughtful and sensitive and kind child, that that part of him won out. That it is the part of him who is him today. Devin, wherever he is, would be 27 today. Maybe he has kids of his own. Maybe he's out there starting a career wondering what life has to offer, what gifts he has to give. Maybe he's still bouncing around like a pinball, but maybe not exploding every time he hits something. I just hope that wherever he is, out there somewhere, that he knows that he is cared about and loved. I hope that he has been able to reconcile that that part of him that was mean and hostile with that part of him that yearned for friendship and human connection and kindness, that he continued to learn and grow and care. I hope this for every one of us who has these two parts of ourselves in us, no matter who we are. These hopes are what faith is, I think. Choosing to believe in love and goodness beyond the so many reasons for cynicism. Choosing to believe that simple kindness can change a life and that no heart is too damaged to be transformed. I remember that when I remember Devon. Maybe all do the same for ourselves and those in our lives. May we keep that hope close. Amen.
2: Hi, everyone. It's so good to be with you. My name is Ember Kelly. I'm the director of religious education here at Fourth Universalist. I use she and her pronouns, and I'm so excited, Reverend Skyler, to get to sit down with you. It's it's been a few weeks. Uh, we I had a trip. I had a COVID positivity. Uh, <laughs> it's it's been a journey. Uh, and it's good to get to sit down with you once again and, uh, get to chat. It
0: is. Uh, it is. I, I've missed these conversations and, uh, I'm glad you, you're back and that you are, uh, on the recovery. I I know that getting COVID, uh, not at home is a tough thing and having to kind of figure out how to get back and feel better. So uh, I'm glad you're on the mend. Um, and I'm glad to be back with you here.
2: So this message, uh, uh, I feel like a lot of people uh, when they have a Mother's Day Sunday at a church, expect a, a very stereotypical, here's a message about Mothers. It's kind of it's kind of the the normal format for Mother's Day at a church. Um, so what was the inspiration for the, the slightly different take on a, on a message today?
0: <laughs> well, um, I have preached on Mother's Day, I think, every year that I've been at Fourth Universalist in various forms I've talked about mothering, I've talked about the divine feminine, I've talked about my own mother uh, and her impact on me. Um, but, you know, one of the things I heard this year was that uh, both from members of our congregation the week before, um, but also in our staff meeting, um, members, as you know, you were there, um, that uh, there was kind of a feeling that, like, people didn't really want to hear about mothers uh, as much this, this year, or felt like, um, it felt like it felt kind of weird that Mother's Day is always about mothers and about mothering, and Father's Day is sort of, not about those things um, and I never I'm actually gone usually during Father's Day I'm on my summer leave at that point um, so I, I don't get the chance to preach on Father's Day um, very often I don't think I maybe have done it once during my time here um, but I, I I was listening to those things and I you know and and part of what I was hearing was that um, from from mothers that is that there's sort of a, a feeling of I think objectification a feeling of sort of of uh, dwelling in, in motherhood and sort of diminishing women to motherhood uh, on Mother's Day. Uh, and uh, and that they would be happy to not have that happen on, on Mother's Day. Um, the other option was to talk about, I think the, the, the landmark news event of the week, which is the, the, um, the impending repeal of, of Roe versus Wade. Uh, but in talking to a number of other mothers as well about that possibility, uh, there was a feeling that that um, would potentially stir up a lot of um, difficult feelings um, around on, on Mother's Day specifically as well. So, so I I, I will probably save that sermon that message for an, another time. Simply because um, the issue of abortion paired with motherhood is just really it's a really um, it's a very challenging topic, and it stirs up a lot of really complicated feelings for a lot of people. Um, and and so I wanted to I wanted to respect that as well. And, and if not. Focus specifically on mothers on Mother's Day, at least not um, not be in a position of making it a more difficult day. Because for some, for a lot of people, it is a difficult day. People who have a hard time with their relationship with their mothers, who maybe wish they could be mothers uh, for a variety of reasons, or are really struggling to be mothers themselves. There's just so many reasons why Mother's Day can be hard, um, in addition for to being a lovely day for people who want to celebrate it. Um, and so I'm sure we'll have more Mother's Day sort of more stereotypical mother's day services in the future but but this this you know this year i wanted to um uh, to set that aside and and then do something a little different so the you know the the, the reflection as you have all heard listening to it or watching it was a it wasn't i think so philosophically um, incongruent with mother's day you know this idea of um, of kindness and love and, and and how we find hope in those sort of relationships, um, and through the enduring quality that, that that love and kindness can offer, and um, I do think there are many ways that we can mother. In, in some ways, the playground supervisors I talked about are mothering in their own way, whether they are male or female uh, identified or or non agendered You know, there's a lot of ways that we embody the qualities of motherhood, no matter who we are. Um, but I didn't want to. But I, I, I felt like that was a way to speak in some ways to the spirit of what what parenting was and is, without going at it super directly.
2: No, I, I thought that, you know, talking about love, talking about this caring for others, talking about, you know, it, it still had those same sort of qualities. Um, I mean, and it really is fascinating. Like you, like you said, this, um, kind of divide in the way that we both celebrate and even talk about Mother, Mother's Day. Um, you know, I think one of the things that I observed in uh, our conversation that we had about uh, the topic for, for this weekend is that, you know, we we when it comes to Mother's Day, we do have this like sort of we, we have this more nuanced discussion where we are talking about like, oh, this is complicated for people. You know, lots of people don't have good relationships, and then you get to Father's Day, and you generally see the same kind of conversation disappear. It's just, oh, happy Father's Day. Um, go enjoy some football or something. You know, um, football so, is a on in June, Ember. Okay, go enjoy some. Well, guys, like, baseball. Okay, see, I'm a little bit out of the loop on sports these days. So, um, <laughs> but, you know, I so I think um, you know that uh, it is interesting to me, and you, you pointed out there, like how uh, how. It's such different ways it's being addressed and oftentimes that happens in the churches too so but Mm -hmm. i really you know i enjoyed this message and thinking about how um the way that we care about uh, people can really impact their lives can make a difference you know so much of activism you know like we like to think that we we, we all want to be like the 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 martin luther king the the gandhi we want to be the big figurehead figure um at least i think a lot of activists do but a lot of the real work of activism and of changing the world comes from these one-on-one connections that you make that can help somebody. Um, I mean, that, that's such a a key thing in in creating a positive change in the world. That's right, and it's much more subtle. Uh, it's less dramatic, um, uh,
0: but it's really it's really part of the work. You know, I as you know, I think I think both of us identify in some way as. Sort of minister organizers. um, And I think those relationships are really what matter, relationships of trust. You and I are going to a uh, a religious socialism gathering tomorrow night, and a lot of it's going to be relationship building. And I think part of the the beauty of it is going to be that uh, it's going to be a space where people who are unapologetically left uh, and and, and clergy are able to connect with each other. um, And they're from all five boroughs. People are, you know, from diverse backgrounds and religious traditions, and it should be a really wonderful thing. But, you know, we can't move together as as people of faith or people of conscience unless we trust each other, unless we know each other, right? And so those kind of relationships really matter. Um, and there's a lot of reasons, and they also sustain us when things get rough. I think part of what we're seeing with this week of, of the Roe versus Wade repeal is just people are feeling really angry and also really dispirited. And, you know, I've seen these memes about, like, you know, Mother's Day, uh, maybe it was a New Yorker cartoon that's like, all I want for Mother's Day is for 50 years of my activism to not be wiped away in, uh, you know, one, one pen stroke, right? Uh, and it's very dispiriting, but we are able to go forward with each other, and that is, that is a great gift
2: right it's it's definitely been uh, a week of complicated feelings for me as somebody who grew up evangelical um and very much part of that uh, pro-life um I, i've switched to more anti-choicer uh language recently um but you know like knowing the you know that this has been something that they've been obsessed about for like as long as i've been alive you know this was talked about in church we got to get the supreme court stacked we got to overturn this and then we can like start making the Christian nation we need. And yeah, so it's, it's definitely been a a complicated week of feelings, um, for, for me around that, um, knowing that, but, you know, I think about the fact that it was getting out of that, uh, that right wing echo chamber and having relationships with people that really helped me, to like, you know, there, I, I was discussing it with a few of a few of my friends. I was just saying, like, guys, like, it's it's usually not something you can just like debate somebody into changing their mind on um, like this is this, this took me years <laughs> of deprogramming to to escape that way of thinking that, that impacts you. That it, it, it's rough, but it, it takes that relationship building.
0: Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. How is it being? I know you were back. Um, back home in the Midwest with family this week. How was that? Did you have conversations with with folks there?
2: Um, a little bit. Um, uh, the whole being isolated because <laughs> because of COVID meant slightly less conversations. Um, uh, but I mean, it was it was really interesting. Not related to that. That um, my my son was was watching some science documentaries and talking about things that he learned about like how if mercury went out of loop that it would cause the earth to like destabilize and you know he was he was so fascinated by the science of all this and my uh, mother uh, spent lots of time talking about religious counterpoints in creationism and it was yeah so it's it was a week of it was two weeks of complicated feelings about uh, religion and science Um, so um, yeah it's it's complicated stuff. Um, I'm curious, we're, you know, to get back to uh, the message though. Was there anything that you, besides like your own personal experiences, because obviously that's a, a good portion of the message is ta- telling the story of, of this young kid? Was there other resources that you drew from as you thought about this? Any books on like the topic that kind of inspire you? I did do some re- deeper research that didn't make it
0: into the sermon around the origins of the phrase "love conquers all," and it comes out of Virgil. Um, it was a Roman writer and the phrase actually is part of a, a story uh, where where someone uses love to such an extreme that it, it actually destroys him hmm. uh, and it's and it's almost a warning to the all all consuming power of love where um, where he loves this woman the character loves this woman so much that he basically and then she rejects him and doesn't want anything to do with him um and he but he's so overwhelmed by love and his whole life is so so upset he's so obsessed by this love of this woman that he ends up dying um and uh and so the phrase itself really is not does not mean what we usually use it to mean um which is part of the interesting thing about it right is that like we use it as a platitude, but it really was not intended as a platitude at all. But actually, as a warning, um, and you know, it's about romantic love specifically, generally, right? Not um, uh, the love in the in the Roman text could be also translated to the the god of love, um, mm. by Cupid or, or 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 something, and that like you know that that god is sort of powerful above all others. Um, um, and that didn't really make it in because it felt like a divergent as I started writing it. But I, I was interested in that idea and how like our society chooses phrases to make into platitudes, to, to reassure ourselves when things get difficult or we need that reassurance. Um, and yet they're not even, they were never intended to be used in that way. Um, they're actually it's much more sophisticated critique. Um, and so I think that was interesting. I didn't end up using it, but I think it right. does, does speak to uh, the nuancing of these platitudes that we wrestle with, right? Um, that I don't think we can say that love conquers all, in the way that we mean it mostly in these days, right? That like that right. love in the general sense, not <coughs> romantic love, but love in general, will win all. I think that's a that's a that is a faith statement, that is a hope statement, but it is not, I think, empirically <laughs> empirically true. Um, I think there's just so many counterexamples to that. Um, and uh, and that is part of what we do as a faith community is live into our hopes for the world, um, and and believe that and by living into them we we
2: can kind of make them into some form of reality. Right. Right. That, I mean, that has me thinking about. Uh, I feel like there's been some conversation recently around. Uh, um, I think the term is like toxic positivity, like the mm-hmm. the where where you're so relentlessly optimistic and positive that you just like refuse to admit that there might be challenges where you refuse to. <laughs> Um, admit that people might have complicated feelings, that it's always just, if you're positive, then everything will be perfect in the way you want it. you got to um, be positive so that it manifests itself, uh, you know, to the point that you forget the, the fact that we're living in this very real and very complicated world. Um, and we do like to take these platitudes and turn them into things that they're not. Um, I, uh, and I mean, the thing about uh, the relationships, like the one that you talk about in the in the message is that it was complicated that it took it took work you know for you to get to know this kid and to get to understand each other and for him to see you as someone that cared about him it's complicated work it's not just like come in and be like okay young kid let's be positive (laughs) um it's complicated hard work but it's it's worth it but you can't force it you can't
0: force it um and you know like i'm sure there's a hundred other kids that that us palling around the playground would have not had that same result, um, but in that one time it, it did. I hope, um, you know, that it was long lasting. Um, I don't I don't know. I haven't uh, uh, I haven't been able to follow his life, but um, but I, I I do think this idea of toxic positivity is real, and I think our faith tradition, Unitarian Universalism, and I think liberal religion in general, is especially in danger of falling into that trap because our Theological foundation is was grounded in the Enlightenment. It's grounded on this sort of hope for a future, and it's very difficult psychologically and emotionally to believe in the power of of change and the potential of a better world uh, without having some feeling that that is being realized uh, as in that moment. Um, because then you have, if you don't have that, if you, it feels a lot of cognitive dis- dissonance and emotional dissonance. Um, and so we're very vulnerable to that. And I think that's why people are so we're so surprised when like Donald Trump was elected, because how could this be right? We we are moving in this direction. That's there's like a foundational belief we have in human goodness and human progress and learning and the, the power of like science and deeper understanding of the world will lead us to this direction. And in some ways that is a, you know, that is an ideological belief that we have chosen to carry with us and ground ourselves in. Um, but I think it's a, it, it's a, it's a challenging troublesome belief that um is not inherently untrue but is also not inherently false uh or inherently true either um there's lots of examples of society and human beings falling apart after a period of progress and we've been able to see i think through the scientific advancement and of certain the expanding rights in many areas of our society a, a progressive line but that just because that happens in this moment you know, I'm sure the I'm sure the Romans and the Greeks thought that they were doing going to go forever as well, and then things started to crack and fall apart, and then we had the Middle Ages for a thousand years, um, which wasn't actually as terrible as people think it is historically. But, but you know, these mindsets that we get trapped in are not always true, um, and there are definitely periods of decline and and uh, problems. Um, so we don't know. Who knows? Future will tell. But. I think we should protect ourselves from those overly optimistic views because we're not free from history and we're not free from human nature. Never will
2: be. I'm going to practice self-control and decide not to take this into a 30-minute discussion of the Bronze Age collapse um, amongst (laughs) uh, two history nerds. (laughs) Bronze Age folks, they were doing so well until they weren't. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> um but you know i will resist our, our 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 inner urge to be history nerds um in, a, in another in another world reverend Skylar and i run a secret history podcast maybe that's what we should be doing on the side um, but reverend Skylar, it was so good to get to sit down with you once again and thank you for for this great message today thank you ember and thank
0: you everyone for for watching and listening